This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Matt Ryan, the Polythea Director. Uh, tonight, we are very, very pleased to do a script to screen, Leave No Trace. Uh, it has one of the rare Rotten Tomato scores of 100%. Uh, <laughs> that's worth an applause because there's very few that have that. Um, other Nova works of our guests was Down to the Bone, the documentary Stray Dog, and she also co-wrote and directed Winter's Bone, which achieved four Oscar nominations, including Jennifer Lawrence's first. So please welcome the UCSB Poly Theater stage, writer-director Deborah Granick. So, of course, I want to congratulate you on the movie. I'm in 100% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-huh. And 100% of my students were nagging me for the last few months, are we getting the event? Are we getting to see this oh, movie on the big screen? Well, I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go back to the beginning. The movie's based on the book, uh, My Abandonment, by Peter Rock. So what inspired you and your co-writing screenwriter, Anne Rissenden, to want to make this into a movie? Well, I opened the pages of a book that say that uh, this father and daughter had lived undetected in a public park on the outskirts of Portland. And my first question is, how, how does one do that? How, how do you remain undetected in, in a large American city? Why are you there? What, what, it's arduous. It's, it's intense to live that way. What, 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 what's motivating that? What would happen if they got you know, found out? What would, what would the societal response be? We want people to come back to the fold. Social conformity is... It's not a villain, but it's a very powerful force. So I was curious what would happen there. So, you know, all the things that I need and maybe many people need to get going on a story is is sort of the classic stuff. Who are they? Why are they doing what they do? What will happen? You know, these these essential questions of, I guess, why humans love to tell stories. Because these are the... These are what make us curious about how are we going to navigate? Why do people choose their paths? Now, interesting, so now you have the book, you're interested, and you and Anne are interested, and obviously the center of the father-daughter relationship. What did you have to, but you have to adapt it, what did you have to remove from the book, change, what were the struggles or decisions What you had to like cut and change up for the book? Yeah. So we, um, even from the get-go, knew that we were going to do one very divergent thing from the novel, um, which was the, um, the certainty of whether... Tom's father is, is really her father, was not, it was left very uh, ambiguous in the book. And we decided to go for the idea that it was absolutely, they are biological kin, and that's not a question in, in the particular story that we're telling. So that's the very, that's a big baseline sort of redirection of the, of the story. And then from there, there were quite a few things that I had compiled on a list of questions to ask the author. He's a living author. He's a prolific author. He lives in Portland. I live on the East Coast, but to research this project, I you know, made several research trips, and central to one of those trips was to meet with him. And the, I put out a co- quite a few things that I, that I queried. And in the book, he speaks in a much more rarefied way. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know... Um, I'm not always understanding that because, you know, where's that coming from? And he's like, well, you know, if you were to see him speak to many more people, you'd realize that he's, he's adaptive. He, he can speak a certain way here. He might speak differently. But, of course, in the book, you don't see all that. So 
I felt a, an immediate liberty to, to I was like, I want to say, normalize his, the way he communicates. Um, and then in terms of uh, their fate, in the book, the father dies, and he dies in a way that's quite grisly, and uh, I didn't understand where that came out of. And the discussion with the author said, oh, this is a thing that from this, it's not that it was a trilogy, but he had these prior novels in which he carried over some of the characters. And I said, given that I've not, my brain hasn't lived that world. Your brain has, my brain. He's like, well, this is where we, we part in a good way. You've got to now go on your own journey. You've got to imagine. They left this farm. So everyone knew what happened to them up to the point where they were placed on this farm. That was written about in, the, in a newspaper article. I probably should have established that, that Peter's novel is a fictionalization of a small, terse article that was in the Oregonian newspaper in which it was stated that authorities were surprised at having found a um, family living in the park that they had not known about, and, they had, and, the, and the family had been living there for a lot of years. Um, and it kind of gave a factual account of what was found in their campsite and the fact that she could read. So some of these facts that you see exhibited at the beginning of the film are directly based from the article and the novel. And no one knows. Nothing more was written about what happened after they left the farm. They lit out from there. I had to imagine, and you know, uh, my screenwriting partner and I had to imagine what that farm, exactly what went, went down to that farm, what, what she was perceiving, what she was seeing, what he was seeing. Um, and then what happened after that was where Peter said, you've got to follow your imagination on that. I don't know where they went. I wrote one version, you've got to write another. And he was basically able to accept, very much so, that a novel is its own thing. It, was writ- it played out in the mind of one author. You pass that novel on. If you choose to option a book, you pass that on. Another set of imaginations are going to now try to follow the journey. And if you think about it dramatically, if, if he was under constant threat, they were both under constant threat, it would have been a totally different film. It wouldn't have been more of an internal struggle. It would have been the outsider trying to kill us or drive us apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Will has PTSD, which is not the easiest condition to film on screen. I mean, it's easier in a novel when you get in their head. Yes. Uh, it relies certainly more on the character, movement, action, and silence. When writing, how did you struggle with putting, trying to get PTSD to come out through Will's character? Mm. Well, I had some incredible tutoring. You know, prior to making this film, I had had a three-year conversation with a vet in, in southern Missouri. And he and his um, friends, who were also, they were all Vietnam-era vets, um, had a really, they could put in front of me, through these discussions, a 40-year chronicling of what PTS is like. Uh, the early phases of trying to uh, be a workaholic or self-medicate through drugs or alcohol or whatever it takes to quell the way the neurochemistry has been changed, the way that you don't feel normal, the way you don't recognize the life that you left before, the way that the society treats you very differently. They were like encyclopedias. And you know the most astute research on PTS has been to finally listen to Vets, you know, and, and, and other people who've experienced trauma that, that is life-altering. And so I was the recipient of this tutoring. You know, it's like my, my American education was to hear from uh, a group of Americans who, you know, I was a child when they were coming of age in Southeast Asia, and I never really ever got to hear that story. And all these years later, they were willing, they were very willing to speak it. And uh, so a lot of backstory was there for me. 
the VA itself has become highly articulate. You know, oh, yeah. red or blue, coastal, central. Uh, we all have opinions about the VA. The VA comes under a huge amount of scrutiny. It's discussed a lot. It's there's we our emotions run high about the VA because it taps into um, patriotism. It taps into honor. It t- taps into pain. It taps into tragedy. It, it just it just it's a, it's a real ballast of intense feelings that we have as being part of this country, um, but in in amongst the many things the VA does, again, good and bad, is it's the world's largest suicide prevention agency. And Mm -hmm. as such, it has produced a very large amount of literature to try to explain in plain language what is is PTS, given that it's an invisible thing. It doesn't mark you. You don't get markings. Mm -hmm. It's behavioral responses. And so I chose a few that I thought could be illustrated, they're subtle to, to some extent. I mean, his hypervigilance isn't all that subtle. He perceives danger with great frequency. He relies on his daughter to calibrate what, whether that danger is real or imagined, or what level it, you know, is it, is it banal? Is it something as simple as the ranger bringing in the crew to trim the branches, get dead trees down? Or is it something greater than that? Um, he's purposely chosen to live in this very sequestered controlled environment in which he can perform to the best of his ability. You know, he, he, it's like he set the stage for where he could function well, and that he does. But we see how fragile that is. That, that, that's, a, that's a very, it's like, that's like he decided, I'm, I'm going to build a nest and all this in, amidst these 50 shades of green with yeah. ferns, and that's the spot in which I can teach you. That's the spot which I can show you some of the skills that I have that are very much intact, that I can not bestow upon you, but, you know, pass on to you. So I was going for those kinds of things. Obviously, night terrors, I, that was a, that's a big manifest one. That, um, you know, after a couple years of listening to Ron, my informant, you know, the, the, he said to me, look at me, I'm this, I'm this burly, uber-macho man. I ride a Harley. I am, I look dangerous, you know, and I wake up crying, and, and that, is from, that is something that I have not, that has not ceased. That activity in my brain has not ceased in 40 years. You may not want to hear that, because that is very disturbing, right? Because okay. we, want, we want to think five to seven years. Let's have a statute of limitations on this, you know? And so uh, the night terrors were very, and they're, and they're very vividly described by soldiers um, as, you know, that uh, even the nature of what happens in them, um, but the fact is that that would be that would be something that would happen between a teenage child of, of a combat veteran who has PTS and their and their and their parent, you know that they would learn to understand that the parent has that, and maybe a way to deal with it is to hum quietly to distract, you know. A little noise and uh, and obviously the night terror scenes were intense for Ben, but I did love his performance when just the way he looked at the beginning. You can see. Um, the, the, not the paranoia per se, it is the fear and the reliance. The vigilance. Vigilance. Yeah. So how did Ben prepare? What was, you know, working with Ben to try to create the character? Yeah. Well, Ben, and I've never really grilled him on this, but Ben has uh, made a lot of effort in his life's work to try to understand the experience of combat veterans. And in his previous films, has embedded at times, interviewed, um, poured over literature and firsthand accounts. You know, so in previous films, Ben already committed to trying to get deep into that. And it's very, very, very important to him that it's 
um, it's meticulous and accurate, and you know he so he does his homework on that. But he was already steeped in it, and then I was able to also sort of pass along this this dossier or this compendium of of firsthand accounts that I thought were very vivid and beautiful. One of the most meaningful ones was um, a book called The Evil Hours, which I cite at the end of the film. It's in the credits. Mm. It's a book by David J. Morris, who actually works out of San Diego. Mm. He's a Marine and a a very exquisite and super talented journalist whose memoir of PTS, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's like someone taking a vow to be a scribe that will try to write down as many details of how this works and how, it's, how it functions and from his own internal experience but also many other men that he served with. And we'll talk a little about, of course, Thomason McKenzie playing Tom. Uh, she lives in Wellington, New Zealand, is mostly unknown except for in her own country. What was about her audition tape that led you down the path like she is the one that played a Tom? So in her audition, she... Um, well, in, her, in the first audition, it was just, I, I, you know, it's a kind of thing where you look at many auditions and you have to just go from the gut. Like, you, you, it's almost like sorting a pile. Strong, strong, strong. Oh, I really felt something. And, and so she, she was in that pile of like, oh, I, I, that, was, that was something about that. You know, the, but at that point, it's more, I don't know what it is. You can't name it. And then spoke with her. She then did some more self-taping about some scenes that she and I discussed from the screenplay. And this was by Skype. It's my Tuesday, it's her Wednesday in a different hemisphere, you know. Um, and she returned some more tapings, self-tapings, and she'd gone down the road and fetched a rabbit, you know, because she noticed that scene very much. And, and I, I, I just saw that willingness. I just saw that she was already a collaborator, you know, um, and that she had read the book carefully, she had read the screenplay, that this, no one was telling her, oh, this is a good career move. No, you know, she was a hungry actor, who responded strongly to the material, and the conversations were just rich. And I, I, I seek that. I, there's nothing, um, you know, I don't lord down in my films. I don't, I, I don't ever feel that I'm all-knowing. They're, they're hugely collaborative efforts. The truth is all filmmaking is. Don't let any auteur ever tell you differently. <laughs> um, so... I, 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 that's my like, that's my number one green light is like hearing her willingness. I'm like, this is great. Come on over. So obviously, uh, you know, Ben and, and Thomason are the central characters. How did they prepare for their relationship living in a wilderness too at the same time? I mean, kind of maybe in pre-production or rehearsal. Yes, yes. So, but you know, you you saw for yourselves. You know, you guys aren't privy to the Pacific rainforest that starts at the, in the northern part, the part that's not burning, you know. Um, and that Pacific rainforest stretches up into Portland, Washington State, up into Canada. And they, uh, neither of them had prior experience being in that forest. And it was, it's very, it brings you into an environment that's specific, just operating, you know, kind of readjusting your eyes to deal with Fifty Shades of Green and that texture, the atmosphere was immersive. And then we hired a primitive skills teacher. She was a champion. She'd been on the show Survivor and had done really well in the same woods that uh, you see depicted. And she was someone who had the option to, she was permitted to take two tools into the wilderness of her choosing, 
She had to pick very carefully, Nicole Appellian, and then proceed to function for 45 days with, with those tools and the inclemency that is characteristic of that forest. And they were, Ben and Tom were very inspired by her. And so she picked things that were reasonable, that they could learn in, in the mm-hmm. modest rehearsal period that we had. So they, had, they learned a little foraging. They learned a little bit of uh, some things they could nibble on. They ate that oxalis that at the beginning of, you know, they, they, it was like kind of a snack during the whole production. Um, ben tried slugs. Thomason wasn't going to go for the banana slugs. Um, and they learned how to find sterile water when there was no source. They could squeeze the moss, you know. Uh, those knives were real. They, they selected them. Nicole helped them find knives. Ben took a real shine to the knives. I don't know if you noticed. He had, a, he had several. He liked the ferro stick. He liked mm. all the exertion of using the ferro rod to strike the sparks to make the fire. Tom, all those feather sticks were Tom's doing. She made a pile of, the, of that tinder. And, and Nicole actually was, like, super impressed. I mean, those were feathered to the point of, um, you know, <laughs> they couldn't be feathered any further. That was pretty... and. So I think it, it, was, it was very stimulating, and, insp- and I think it was like um, just a good circuit of I'm learning a whole lot right now. I'm getting real dirty. I'm exerting myself, and, and I'm also going to be doing these things on, in the story. And, and, it, it and it must have created a special going. bond between the two. Like a unique, obviously, their relationship had to be closer than most we've ever seen, a father-daughter relationship on screen. So it must have really helped them dramatically, too, kind of finding... The character voices. Absolutely. And, and to be able to check. There's something to really always look at, right? Mm-hmm. It's check the process, pass something. There are things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really wonderful for actors. I mean, it's great for filming, of course. It's, it's you know, lenses and the act of, of trying to photograph things. Process is, is, is wonderful on screen. We're, we're, you know, that's, that's, that's our, that is our primitive skill side of us. We are intrinsically interested in how... Something gets from A to B, you know, how someone whittles something, how someone starts with, with you know, the rod and makes a flame and then, makes, and then cooks their food. We, we, we like to see how things are done. It's interesting because you mentioned the, uh, like the, the opening scene seemed like the most homey place I've ever seen. But it's not a traditional home for most viewers. But it made it, how did you work your cinematographer to create that kind of homey look at the beginning of the film, especially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so pleased people have said that to me and you know I think um, it was a little bit intuitive by by the DP you know I, I've collaborated with him many on, on previous films and Michael McDonough and he um, and I really enjoy we, we, we clip out images from other people's films that inspire us and whatnot but then frequently we're, we're doing this very this technique that is common to social realism which is you're just trying to be a gentle observer Right? You're not going to dolly in on people. You're not going to have a jib. And we do have two drone shots at the beginning and at the end. And, I, and we can talk about that if anyone is interested in that, you know, the idea of why you choose certain things. But, so he was on knee pads. He was just kneeling near their campsite. He was a quiet, he, he, it's like treading very gently and coming close and being very quiet. The crew ducked down. They, just, they got into the ferns. They were not visible. So we created a very low-key atmosphere. Our lighting package was minuscule. We're using a lot of reflected light, a lot of bounce boards. You know, so in those ways, we're trying to keep ourselves hushed so that they can be very subtle in their gestures, and our presence is hopefully subtle. 
Yeah, because in some ways, if you weren't subtle, the movie's all about leaving no trace and blending in. Yeah. So if you did those kind of crane shots continually or running gun shots, it wouldn't have worked. Um, so how, how many days of the shoot was it actually in the forest? It was 30 days, so five, uh, six five-day weeks. Wow. And, you know, that was a big jump for me because um, my first one was 21 days, then I got 24 and a half. <laughs> so 30 was a huge achievement for me, for, you know, in, 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 my, in my strata of filmmaking, which is the low-budge world. <laughs> now, obviously, uh, you know, did any of the crew say after, like, the 25th day, can we next time do a scene in Hawaii or something? Was it cold or? No, you're not going to hear that from Oregonians. They are stoic. They know their they know their forests. They have, they advised us. They they I always love to say this. They know the kind of raincoat that you get where the zipper is even waterproof, and that's so important. If you if you dress properly, that's what the whole lesson was. If you're prepared for this, we can keep going. This this doesn't shut us down. You can't be a citizen of a region where it rains seven-eighths of the year and have rain ruin your day. I mean, you know, that's just not, that's not going to be viable. So, um, you know, no, that, that actually, I don't, Oregon's, they, they, Oregonians can't afford to say that, right? Um, and it was beautiful, and it's very cinematic. People spend a lot of money on wet dons to make, you know, um, lenses love reflective surfaces. It's one of the mm. most irresistible kind of, Photographic, you know, illuminated wet surfaces. That's what the forest was giving us. It was actually a good yeah. lesson because we have uh, students in here. Uh, uh, just like they're actually doing a shoot. Uh, it's an interesting producing thing because they understand going with an Oregon crew is more helpful with that. Yes. Someone that's accustomed to it, so they do, could react. Yes. Where someone who's not accustomed to that might struggle more in a different climate. Yeah. No, I love to shoot local. I love. I, mean, I, I love to make you know try to work in the region in which the story is set. That, that means a lot to me. And then. To cast local, to shoot local, you know, we've we now know that this is kind of, you know, there's a really good side to the word local, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting in the beginning, civilization is depicted industrial, inviting, loud, and cold when they first go to the city. How do you go to how do you go about portraying urban society through Will's eyes? Because it was really through his eyes we saw that world. Yeah. So we used a different set of lenses first, oh. you know. So um, uh, in the in the Forest, we use a set of lenses that are softer and the, and the colors are more saturated. Um, and then for the urban, uh, Michael chose these, they're called Hawk T1 lenses. And, you know, it was for the hard edges. It was for the built world. It was for the sort of relentlessness of cement. It's for that high bridge, for the, um, for the ramps on the freeway. Those are, yes. And that was thunderous. And, and even... The crew felt we after we had been in the forest, it was it was arresting and disturbing how thunderous the traffic was, and we we of course worked with that in the sound design very much so to say that um, every few feet from the inner sanctum of that spot they had in the, in the park, every few feet closer to the city, it was like you know an increase in in the intensity of that of those of the lived world, the sounds of the lived world. Also must have helped, you know, uh, Will and, and Thompson, too. You know, getting, oh boy, getting a little stressed out by the, yeah, the sounds again. I think so, I think so. And, um, of course, and that was really, uh, very, almost hyperbole. You know, well, it wasn't a hyperbole. It was, it was, it's, it's a real practice to harvest the Christmas trees with helicopters, oh, yeah. you know. Um, and that um, Oregon exports 35 million Christmas trees. Very big extractive industry. And, um, 
agricultural industry, the extractive is more like felling the forests themselves. And as you saw, they were extremely concerned with how Californians were going to receive the <laughs> trees, you know. And um, I, I thought one of the um, sort of echo outreach programs after this film could be for um, Californians to be willing to accept, like, lopsided trees and sort of um, <laughs> forlorn trees, gangly trees, trees that have, like, a little defect, you know, seconds. Just say, like, we'll take them. It's the okay. Charlie Brown tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was also very, uh, one of the things that really hit, hit me hard was when they get captured, like, you know, captured. And then Will and, you know, the, the social services people think, oh, she must be abused or behind educationally. Uh, you know, the characters think the social services are going to be mean. None of that happened. Everybody was actually very compassionate, helpful, and expectation kind of you subverted them. What were the challenges actually creating this? Because in a way, you don't have a villain. Right. You know, so what were the challenges, like, storytelling-wise, yeah. to pull this off? Because everybody actually was helpful and, on both sides. Yeah, no, I mean, it, this, so the, the absence of a villain, of course, leaves you with terror as a, as a scriptwriter and as a filmmaker. Like, flat line, what are we going to do here? This is, this is, you know, people need, people need malice. They need nefarious behavior. They need violence. You know, you, no, no threat of, of physical harm. What, what, how would we ever accept a film of this nature, you know? And uh, it turns out that we're so preloaded with the expectation of things not going well for people that... We supply our own fear. We are we 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 really we, we do that very readily, and um, and you know that's on one level you know it's it's sort of ironic, but on the other level it's sobering. Um, but social conformity, it's while it's not a villain, it's a very intense pressure. We really don't allow no 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 society is actually that comfortable with us with any of us deviating and becoming non-conforming more than a few millimeters. We want you back, right? You know, um, and but. But closer to your question, so I'm interviewing social workers. And of course, lo and behold, after talking to quite a few, I wasn't finding anyone that goes, becomes a social worker because they have malintent, because they'd actually like to harm someone, like they'd actually like to mess up their life further. You know, it's a non-glamorous profession. It's arduous. It's heartbreaking at times, frustrating. Things jump wrong in social work. Every state has their set of nightmares where something is... A policy lags behind a reality, or a policy turns out to be misguided, or a practice, or something isn't detected early enough, or it's, it's, it's over you know, it's over, it's over controlled. It is a very hard arena of human uh, behavior and practice, and, and of course, with the state being involved in that. But the fact is, it would have been on me if I decided to like take uh, to portray social workers as actually being. Without her interest at heart, you know, or without his, without without some consideration of his interest, and so, uh, and you know, Portland is it is known that that little enclave, that bubble, it is it does have a, a history of of benevolence towards uh, poor people, towards unhoused people, and they've gotten themselves in a pickle around that, you know, because there now there are people in Portland that would say like. Stop! Stop with the with the uh, you know biodynamic dinners. Stop mm-hmm. with the um, unbelievable services under the bridges with with the distribution of hygiene materials and, and and decent bedding. Stop! You know you're you're making it a mecca for unhoused people. You're 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 inducing people to become unhoused. You know it's so good for the unhoused people. Of Portland. I mean I'm just saying that's yeah, the hyperbole, that's, but yeah, you know. But the fact is. Um, who 
knows why citizens of Portland, many of them are just intrinsically decent people. I can't explain that. I don't know why. <laughs> but the, you know, the fact is that is the, that is the empirical reality that I encountered. You know, and uh, those were real police detectives. Those were real. Uh, those were real uh, Portland PD. You know, I mean, but everything on this screen is also contingent, right? About decency. If Will were black, that arrest, that would have, that would, that, that, it was not an arrest, cause, but that, that moment of encountering him and apprehending him would have looked very different, most likely. Okay. Um, and, but the fact is, they told me what they would be very concerned with, the idea that, uh, that she was there against her will, or what, you know, right. they, they, yeah. for them it presents a very uncomfortable, uh, ambiguous reality. Why is an adult male found with this teen in a tent. Person, right, yeah. exactly. What is going, you know, so it has to be triaged, it has to be assessed. But, you know, I didn't, those particular PD were not people that seemed to be uh, engaged in excessive force as, a, as, 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 a, as maybe a, a problem in their lives, you know, or, or you know, so I couldn't, it, 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 it really was not going to be acceptable to my own conscience to start just throwing in some villains willy-nilly. You know? um, so. I thought the scene, the social worker, the scene that affected me a lot was the social worker when he was on the computer. You know, that mechanized voice, and he's like, you know, are you proud of your daughter? And he just totally froze. That was actually one of the more impactful scenes. A good way of showing PTSD. Yeah, and that, that line, um, the, one of the social workers in Portland, he came on the set that day. Yeah. And in, in, in some rehearsals, he had, was advising me, and he said, you know, I would switch it right now. When I see the guy freezing, I would actually try to say something that would make him feel good, that would, that would, that would shore up his self-esteem, that would let, let him know that I see good in him. You know? So I just appreciated that, and, and I thought, let's, let's put that in. Why? That, that, that did, I couldn't have known that. I, I, that did, that's not a line that comes from me. That was infused by the social worker. Wow, that was a great moment. But you know, even the, the, the other social workers, they were all trying to helpful. Now, they placed them in the, home, the house, so moving there. I found it was interesting, the first time Ty, Tom starts crying or showing emotion is when uh, she's worried about the other kids would think of her in school. Uh, it's also the first time that she breaks away from dad a little. Why did you decide like fitting in is the first sign of their, uh, their relationship kind of diverging when they had so many other challenges to this point? Because that is the one thing that... Um if Will had, you know, if you want to call it an agenda, if her father had an agenda, it was to uh, carve out this space in this very cacophonous digital world where you could still think your own thoughts. He's very preoccupied with the idea that we don't have a lot of real estate left in this hard drive, right? It's being very colonized and taken up by hyperconnectivity, the incoming that we can no longer, many of us can no longer even... Uh, up a firewall about how many how many incoming pieces of fragment we take in each day, and he had it in his mind. If I what if I could provide this one chapter of my daughter's life in which she had the space to think her own thoughts at the age of majority, at the, at the age of emancipation, she will be free to be as hyperconnected as she wants. She will she will have no trouble adapting. I mean, no one people people learn how to use a cell phone within fifteen minutes. You know, there's never an issue that, oh my God, you know, you have to be heavily socialized so that you could adapt to social media. No. Um, so the, the breakaway, absolutely, like, 
she had never, it's that reflexive moment. She had never judged how they're living. She had never had to compare to anyone. And her first foray was wondering whether she would be rejected, seen as a freak, right? That first self-consciousness where you turn against what was previously okay. Um, I think it's, it's, it's fear, right? Fear of, yeah, yeah. fear of somehow being seen as unworthy of, of, of other people's friendship, of other people's approval, and he was devastated. You know, I think that's hard. It's hard to see in, in just a few, in a few short days that something that had been shored up and pretty much stable in someone's frame of reference could be And she changed. asked, the only thing she asked for was a phone, not an, I, not an iPhone. Just like, I want to be able to call you. It was an interesting time. But speaking of like, yeah, she's, all, she's afraid, but you, essentially you use animals that use the winter's bone, and, and, and really kind of animal therapy with the rabbits. Yeah. How was that for, you know, a way to kind of break the character, bring the character into society with the animals? And she actually interacted with dogs a lot. Yeah. I, I really liked, you know, I was trying to research. I said, you know, I had to go to this rural area where we were going to film in the farm, and I said, what, what would Tom find? If Tom, if Tom went, if she just wandered, because she's got time to wander at that point. You know, school hasn't started. You know, the threat of school is around the corner, but she hasn't done that yet. And I was like, if she walked down the lane, what would she find? 30 miles in, the, in, this, in this sort of periphery around, our, our radius around Portland, 30 miles, 10 miles outside of Portland, there was 4-H. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Um, you know, I'm an urban person, so this is just not for me to actually be so gung-ho about, but I will admit, it's like, you know, in the last few years, I definitely, I have a notebook that I carry around where anytime I see anything benevolent, decent, kind, fuzzy, good in America, I'm like, I put it in my notebook. And I was like, 4-H, 4-H. I, 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 I mean, you know, challenge me here, but you know, I don't, I, you know, 4-H was seeming like, it exists in all 50 states. It exists in most county of all those 50 states. So does devotional dance. We can get there in a minute. But, you know. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is a long-running tradition. American rural teenagers that take great interest in trying to be responsible, to care for creatures, to understand them on a very uh, intense level of, you know, real almost like scholarly biology. I mean, th- those kids knew every organ of those rabbits on a level that they could be tested an AP supersonic <laughs> rabbit biology, and they would have scored <laughs> off the Richter. Uh, and, but, it, but the investment, the investment of time and energy in trying to say, hey, as rural kids, we actually do need, we, we need to work on our self-esteem. We need to be articulate mm. about our life. We need to actually not, not um, disregard our heritage you know, those of us that can stay in any form of agriculture, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be good if a few of us who really still like it or, or are affiliated could actually make a life? Uh, you know, we, we need some farmers to, st- to stick to it, you know. And so that's the, the, the animals. I, I, but it was, a hard, it was a hard choice because who, who wants to be the person that has to decide between baby goats, <laughs> cows and calves, and... I mean, the chicken club was outrageous as well. <laughs> you know, the poultry, poultry, <laughs> just like the mani pedi. To seeing seeing teen American boys, you know, like really just taking care of the nails of chickens, you know, and roosters, you know, and and polishing their beaks, just taking such good care, being so committed. I was like, how can I not? put this in this film, not to mention that they're photogenic, hair light, rim light on animals is amazing, you know, for the people that like to film, you know, just, um, so yes, I I was like, and Tom is, it's not going to be lost on her. 
the kid's cute, you know. Isaiah, he's yeah. he's he's an attractive guy, and he yeah. actually, you know, he skates, and he he's also um, he also participates in Future Farmers of America, you know, and. And her connection yeah. to nature helps because obviously she can gravitate to the rabbit first before she's nervous about being with the boy, the kids. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's a good little segue. And of course, Will has a great moment with the horse, like wanting desperately to actually care for the horses. Um, but now, but now we're going to jump a little to the forest. Obviously, the forest, the next forest, is much different looking. Yeah. And you know, and Will has put his daughter in serious jeopardy uh, because they're about to die if they don't get that thing up, especially her. Uh, how did you work on the, like, mostly Act 3 in the sequence to keep us feeling sympathy for Ben, knowing that he's putting his daughter in, you know, deep jeopardy? And, and that is a moment where I think it's, it's, it's natural or fine or good or right that people would lose sympathy for him there. That's, that's um, he, you know, I had, a, I had to work on my own understanding of that, and I felt... I did feel that there was a domino effect. I felt that once he started to feel that he was being chased, right, that idea of almost being on the lamb, he started to make a series of very poor decisions under duress. Right. So to get off that bus is very, is very rash. It's, it's, it's coming out of fear. It's coming out of a, a very poor decision-making process. His brain chemistry is getting really, he's getting jammed up. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to talk him down the bus. It's, it's, it, you know, he's he's questioning why she would. You know, she he has to she has to point out, you know, you're the one who's calling attention to us by being so nervous. You know, she's the one who has to sit down and say, in reality, no one's actually really looking at us. You know, but he feels he knows he's done something wrong. He knew that the social workers were invested mm. in him staying there with her, so he has lit off and he has. Uh, it's not it's not illegal what he did, but he feels he feels pursued. And so the decisions become worse and worse. And so that was the only route of entry for me to have this. It's like, at his best, he would not operate this way. Um, but the fact is, he did put her. He did put both. He put her in jeopardy. And uh, and it is, it is fortunate that the skill set was there enough. It was. It, it was almost not enough. But by the time that shelter was uh, constructed, sure. that is enough. To protect them from hypothermia, you know, um, but it, I did want it to be dangerous. I did want it to be something that uh, causes us to feel very concerned and I would say troubled, very troubled that doesn't you know you don't need a weapon for there to be a threat. That, that's right. those are those older themes that all of us, all of us, right in seventh grade English, you know. Man, now we'd say person versus nature. You know, um, we are we are we are fragile. You know, we're fierce animals, but there's a, there's a point at which you know we don't have enough fur to survive hypothermia. You know, <laughs> um, and there's a, a point at which we can't uh, go without a sterile source of water. Right. So th- those things uh, became a threat. And it's interesting, but that's also when Tom says them. Now we're getting now you're setting up her being independent enough. Because she actually takes on a, even a mothering role, rescues him, brings him to the you know, to the community. Let's talk a little about the community because one of my favorite actresses, Dale Dickey, <laughs> you cast in Winter's Bone, a slightly different character in Winter's yes, Bone. Yes. Uh, how many seen Winter's Bone? Just out of curiosity. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, how, what was it? Why did you pick Dale? What was the special about her that made you want to cast her in that role? 
it's so funny because last night in the Egyptian in LA, Dale was there because they were showing Winter's Bone and this film, and so she, and so I think the audience, you know, they showed her a lot of love. And um, but one, the youngest member of the audience asked because they saw how nice Dale was. They said, "How could she be so mean in the movie?" <laughs> and uh, uh, and it would have been actually interesting if Dale could have talked about that a little bit. But um, so. I, I typed in the word Dale. I typed in the name Dale. I typed in, you know, at, when I sat at my laptop, when I thought, who would be this live and let live, this mayor of this co- sort of bohemian community, which was um, based on something I witnessed in southern Missouri, you know, a, a, a similar kind of community. I thought of Dale, you know, and I, and so there's actually movement. The, the Mayrab character she plays in Winter's Bone, you know, she does the right thing in the end, right? Yeah. Her conscience actually burbles up and she decides she sees in this in this girl re a, a version of herself a hard scrabble survivor she actually has some high regard that re is willing to stand up like that and take risk and and and, and seek out something she really needs and it, and and it calls up in this character to to do the right thing ultimately and i was like well if someone can get there they can certainly go the other way which <laughs> no. is to really do the right thing you know to be about doing the right thing to to get to get off on doing the right thing and um, and I just, I thought that um, Dale could seem like a person of that woods, you know, meaning that she's got the lines of life on her and she's got the, um, sort of the, you know, once she puts on her heavy flannel, she can look like, you know, the, uh, the wool-laden Oregonians. <laughs> a lot of plaid, a lot of flannel. Uh, you know, there's a saying in Hollywood, never work with children or animals. I'm going to add bees. <laughs> insects. What were the challenges working the beekeeper? Because I, I watched some interviews, and so Thompson actually got really into yes. the bees. Yes. So the beekeeper was a hidden gem. Yes. So there was a way in which the, it became imperative to work with a lot of local people in Portland. And you know, you can't cast an actor to be a beekeeper. You need to cast a beekeeper. You can't say to any actor, "Hey, we'll suit you enough up enough," but you know, you need to. You know, insurance won't even cover that. There's just no way to to pull that off. You know, um, and this beekeeper was, again, like Nicole Appellian, like the skills trainer, just, as you could see, super passionate, had developed a lot of, um, a lot of insight and just could wax poetic about bees and her passion and, and had um, really inspired Tom. Tom so before we shot, Tom went over to her house to the beekeeper's house, and in, in the backyard were her hives, and then she had also set up like a really ornate spa for bees where they could relax in this like tub that she put out because <laughs> she was like so concerned about like you know the fact that they have to fly two two miles to retrieve the you know she was just really trying to make it good for the bees in her backyard and um and tom spent time there and then sue the beekeeper determined that tom was eligible you know that she had the demeanor uh the calmness that she would be able to handle bees successfully and so then we went, we went step by step, very slowly, first with the gloves, and then when the gloves were removed, Tom felt comfortable holding the bees, and then we built from there. But yes, it was, um, but the beekeeper, unbeknownst, when I first met her, I didn't know she had been already, she had had acting experience. She had been the very benevolent um, animal introducer on a child, a very famous children's show called Romper Room. Oh. which some people in the room might remember. So she had been Sue from the zoo. <laughs> uh, so she knew how to actually speak to 
younger people and get them to feel positively engaged with the sort of awesomeness of, of other species. And bees were just her, her latest foray. That was a great comedy effect because even, even uh, Will's character got it. You could see he was calmer with the bees, too, at therapy. All right, so then, of course, we have to talk about the goodbye scene. Really, I love that the, the setup earlier when she says the same thing is wrong with you is not wrong with me, which you knew at the moment he was going to goodbye. But how did Ben and uh, Tom, did you approach it with them to pull up that scene? Because that is the pivotal, you know, the climax. Yeah. We were so fortunate. Uh, we shot in order. So I, I don't know if it's common knowledge that so few films are shot in order. And um, what happens when you shoot in order is that the relationship can build in, in increments. And so that all the good things that happen at the beginning are theirs to... That's the first layer. Then uh, the tensions of perceiving that farm differently are there. Then the direness of what happens or the the, the, the sort of very concerning feelings that she starts to develop to see her father act so tense and so um, rash, uh, so uncomfortable, so uncertain, so disrupted. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of their experience. And then seeing him have... You know, almost appear to be able to uh, become more at ease at the at the at the camp community, but not really. And and she's watching him like a hawk, right? Is is he or isn't he? So by the end, that mixture was in both of them. They they had seen different facets of one another, and um, not to mention the real life duration, right? The longitudinalness of spending six weeks with someone, day oh, in and day yeah. out, right? Um, so a real bond is there in terms of a comrade, a fellow traveler. Um, and uh, Ben was, it was just kismet. It was crazy serendipity that he was expecting his first child. And who, it had already been found out that she was a girl. And so Ben, I think, got it in his heart that he was just in some ways saying goodbye to one daughter as, one other, as another daughter was arrived, you know, just as another person was coming into his life. And I think... Um, you know, so some real, some real traction had was there, and some attachment was there. Well, you definitely felt it, and that's a good line for even some screenwriters. You can do so much without saying anything, letting the actors kind of breathe in the space. Uh, well, one, one or two quick questions about some other piece of work, and then um, Winter's Bone. Uh, what are the challenges of trying to get into that world? You know, that kind of world that, you know, you and I are talking backstage that we're not accustomed to. Yeah. Uh, just letting you know, it's in the uh, southern Missouri and, you know, it's crystal meth and a very, the Ozark, so a very poor section. How did you get in that frame of mind to get into that role, that film? Yeah. So I didn't feel very comfortable going and being the filmmaker that was going to you know, arrive in the Ozarks as an East Coast person, a city slicker, um, and... Uh, didn't, the legacy of what filmmakers have done to the Ozarks, done to Hill People, you know, in terms of their portrayals, it's pretty. It's a pretty uh, dark and exploitative history, and so it really was. It was completely contingent on whether we would find people that wanted to collaborate with us. And I felt good about one thing. I knew that the character was a kind of a folk hero. She was going to make. I think local people feel very good about what it means to see a, a, a native daughter. Uh, working so hard to avoid meth, right? This film was not about the use of meth. It was what does it take to avoid getting tangled in a, in a, in a, in a, in a black market that ultimately is not good for your people, you know? What is it... She, she uh, embodied some of their 
I would say, principles that mean a lot to them, right? To be able to stand your ground about the humble house you live in, the uh, sort of the sanctity of family, mm. you know, to, to, to be looking out for your kin. You know, obviously there's the darker side of when something jumps wrong, when a black economy can divide people and, make, and, and mm. cause so much suspicion, so much betrayal, snitching, negative behavior, right? So, but they liked her. And that was the route of entry. And someone was very willing to be our fixer, someone, a local man who could speak both languages. He could speak to us as, as outsiders, but he could speak to his neighbor. And he could, ver- he could vouch for us. He said, once I vet you, I, can, I, will, I, will, I will vouch for you. We will go neighbor to neighbor, and I will explain what you're trying to do. And then you will let them see the screenplay. You will let them read the novel. You, know, you, will, you will ask them to do those things to see if they kind of approve. Do they, do they think the story's worth it? Do they think it's a good reflection, a decent reflection? Do they think there's any reason to make this story? And so it's, it's by permission. You know, you don't go to a place like the Ozarks without, yeah. without permission. It, what's going to come of that? All right, so just in case, oh, I did a quick question, well, last question for me is about the one scene, so if you don't want spoilers, you can plug your ears. But there was one scene in Winter's Bone that stayed with me in most audiences, the end scene with Jennifer Lawrence and Dale Dickey going out into the swamp to recover uh, her, body, her father's body parts to prove. How do you do a scene like that with actors to give them a space where they can do something so intense? So that was, that, that was really traditional movie making in the sense that, um, you know, that it called for like a frozen pond, and that pond was not frozen, and... Um, and that some of that scene is actually day for night, you know, so they were doing it, it you know, it looks nocturnal, right? And, and some of it we did night for night, but some of it, so there, there had to be a lot of um, leaps of, I, I think it did help that they were on a boat. You know, that, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, being, just feeling sensation when you're, when you're working to, to make something believable so you can immerse. Um, I will say that it was super uncomfortable I think it became very believable in, in Jen's mind. You know, if you're plunging your hand in and you really don't know what you're going to find, you know, I think you can let the sense of that, the sense memory of that, or the sense projection of that really affect you. And, um, and uh, I, I, it, was, it was hard. It was hard for Dale to be that harsh. It was hard for Dale. I mean, she is not that person at all. And so I think it was hard to muster that. But again, that, that's... That's where the magic or you know, that, that part you can't quantify or qualify about acting does kick in. I can't answer that. You know, right. I don't know where that comes from. But it's true. The, the, the director has to back off and give that space. You know? um, and then I think in this film, very much, some of that work was done by the fact that we were shooting in these real situations. So the real water was on them. The real woods was there. The real dirt. The real flames. You know, so giving actors as much material so that they're feeling texture, that it's it's up in them. That is the work of the director to make sure that the director and and the colleagues of the crew to give the the physical elements that are needed to immerse. Well, we'll, we'll I'll give you time just for a couple of quick questions from the audience. So we're going to run a mic to you. Uh, Maybe a more cheerful question than I just asked. Uh, oh, right here, uh, because I went, you know, I went to a pretty dark place there. Uh, um, early on, you said that um, 
you, you could talk about the drone shots at the beginning and the end. And given your interest, both formally and narratively, to be interested in being really on the ground, could you talk a little bit about those, those opening and closing shots? Yeah. Um, I do keep it super simple, and the, the biggest piece of equipment that I had on this, you know, that was in, in any way elaborate was what they call a, a slider, you know, just to go a little bit back and forth uh, in, in certain scenes and, and not have to repo so much. Um, but so I do, I, I love the, and I liked when Michael was on his knee pads, just, you know, very much at their level at the campfire. The use of the drone was very specific to show the, the I wanted just something to show the vastness of the forest. I wanted something to show that those were tall trees and that they were ensconced. And I felt that the drone would allow me, in a, in a kind of poor man's process, meaning that you know, the drone is so much cheaper. I mean, I, there was no, you know, to do any kind of cherry picker or crane or anything of that nature or scissors lift, that would be super expensive. So the drone was kind of a cheap way to get one high angle that would show the vastness of the forest. So I wanted, I wanted first of all, people to see that it was a kind of oceanic. That when he traverses those ferns, you know, and when you see her, and I also love that you, you understood that she slips away. That she was like a wood sprite, right? That you see her, and that it doesn't take much for her to go behind two juvenile trees. By the third tree, she's gone to your perception. You can't see her anymore. And then at the end, the drone was actually dedicated to something we couldn't shoot in the end. Um, we were shooting in that, in that kind of bohemian enclave, that little village of campers and former logging dwellings. What you couldn't see was that that was 21 acres with a thin tree line that was left and everything around it for miles and miles and miles was clear cut. So it was like this little oasis of these like last standing trees and it was Weyerhaeuser and Georgia Pacific and all the other, and it was this just forever into the distance of stumps. And I, I knew that Will was never going to find what he was looking for, and, that, and that's why his, you know, in some ways, Tom, the malleable one, she kind of knew, like, I'm going to stay in the last grove standing. And he, he, but we, we couldn't shoot. Weyerhaeuser said, oh, yeah, we'll consider it, but we need six months to deliberate about whether you can shoot that. <laughs> De facto, you can't do it, you know. Um, so we, the drone was there it was something we had scheduled and even though you can't really tell that he's walking into some, some, that, some of that brush that, 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 uh, that brush that is scotch broom it's what grows up and the trees are felled and he, he walks into that brush from that little dusty road it's a logging road um, so the drone had been there so that when it rises up you see that it's almost... It's, it's not too perceivable, but the, it's a patchwork of... There's some trees left, right? The way a clear cut looks like, it looks like someone who's had a patch job done on their head, right? Like, shave in this section, this section's still growing, shave this section, and he was, he was walking towards that. Um, so I wasn't... You know, I, I sort of felt like it was the tool that was, that was accessible to show a larger landscape, and I, and I thought bookending it, showing it the beginning and the end would serve the story. And we end our show with the same question. Uh, what, growing up, what, what film, if you, because you have a lot of aspiring screenwriters in our audience, what film uh, or script would you say that perhaps inspired you or something that our students should study? Ah. God. Um, 
a part of growing up really young, or do you mean like no, anything, years, no, anything young, young, anything? Because remember, young were more impacted as children actually, and sometimes yeah. in movies. Um, gosh, you know, I remember, I remember, I don't know what it would be like to see this film right now, but I remember really being very affected by Island of the Blue Dolphins. <laughs> um, and I, um, I think it's, it's hard to get like you can get like bootleg copies of it you know and I don't know how it would hold up I think it might be atrocious I don't know I don't know um, what, 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 what's going on with that film now I remember just like the idea of um, huge responsibility for another person affecting me and um, things you can't change you know and, and, and fates you can't always determine and sort of how, how intense it is to be able to like that stories can look at that and um, and then I, I remember being really affected by all the president's men, <laughs> truth-telling and like having this um, admiration at a very early age for what it would be like to try to unravel things. Mm-hmm. And it uh, turns out like, I was so impressed that my daughter liked the film as well. Like, um, you know, and recently, and she's 13, you know, she was 13 when she saw it. And, um, and so... Oh, so many films really, really laid into me and, and, and put the groundwork down. Um, not even, yeah, there were a lot. I, I was very receptive. I was very receptive to the films I saw as a kid. And then, of course, understood more what was attracting me and drawing them to by the time I maybe got to look at them again in college or, you know. Well, we talked some Leave No Trace and Winter's Bone. These films resonate because I think they show us a world that we're not accustomed to seeing, but make them human and, you know, and realize that you know, the world is not so black and white. So, and hopefully this inspires our screenwriters to tell their own stories about worlds that maybe we don't know. Uh, thank you so much for coming Aww. to talk to our audience about your, your work. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.